0: You're listening to the Core Life Training, what is it? Core Life Training Podcast, of course it is, with Jeff Olson. Hey, what's up my friends? This is Jeff with the Core Life Training Podcast, where we dig into the Bible, get down with some killer tunes, and cool out with a tasty, tasty drink of choice. Spoiler, Narwhal Imperial Stout. So good. Welcome to episode number 19. All right, you guys, I am stoked to be back for a new episode. It's been a while. 2020 has just been a bear in so many different ways, as I'm sure you know in your own life. It's been that way in mine too. We just got our youngest two off to college last week. It's been just a busy, crazy time. I'm excited to be back with the Core Life Training Podcast. One thing that I've been doing recently is doing a Bible read-through with some people from my church and uh, some other people from some other churches. And my goal always is to help people know the Bible better so that ultimately they can know and love God more. And as we're reading through the Bible together, questions come up, and part of my job is to be there to help kind of answer those questions and work people through that stuff. A great question came up from Genesis chapter 22. This is the story about uh, Abraham offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice to the Lord, Uh, If you've read the Bible at all, you probably have a pretty clear idea that, I don't know, like sacrificing your children is a big no-no. Actually, in the Bible, uh, God says he hates that kind of thing. So the question came up, how is it that God can command from Abraham the very thing that he forbids or he hates everywhere else in the Bible? I think it's a great question. I was glad to answer it. And we're going to dig into Genesis chapter 22 and sort that out in this episode. So why don't you grab your Bible, grab a notebook, and grab your drink of choice And let's get down to business. So, I probably don't need to say too much about sacrificing children to idols being a bad thing. I mean, you really probably don't have to know very much at all about the Bible. Uh, You could be a complete beginner, you could never even have heard of the Bible. And just the concept of offering children as sacrifices to idols, in like, worshiping an idol, just kind of strikes all of us as a big no-no, right? Um, But I did want to just show you in the Bible, and I put these in your notes. There's, uh, I don't know, uh, there's probably 15 references in your notes. I want to look at a couple just before we get going, just to highlight some of the background here to set up the problem. Okay, so I want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31. And I'm not going to make a bunch of comments on these because these are super self-explanatory. If you want to just on your own time go through the whole list, Uh, Just to prove the point and to see the entire biblical picture of it, you're you're more than welcome to. Uh, Deuteronomy 12, 31, you shall not behave in this way towards the Lord your God for every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. Now the Lord is talking to Israel just as they're about to head into the promised land, and he's warning them, don't do what all the people in the promised land do. Don't worship their idols like they worship. Don't marry their kid. Don't marry your kids with their kids because they'll turn your hearts to worship idols. Don't do what they do. And one of the things that he's warning them against doing is here in verse 31. Um, and he, called, he says, for every abominable act. I don't use the word abominable very much in my real life, but that's pretty bad. Which the, Lord's ha- which the Lord hates <clears throat> they have done for their gods. For they even, so they do a ton of stuff. And here's the like icing on the cake sort of. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And the author of Deuteronomy says that's an abominable act to the Lord, and the Lord hates that act. And then flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. And here again, we have something real similar uh, when he talks about, in verse 9, entering the land. It says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things Of those nations so i mean you're getting a sense for uh of the heart of the lord for this stuff right it's abominable he hates it he detests it verse 10 there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire now we know from deuteronomy 12 that's an act of worship towards an idol um burning your children as an offering uh to idols there shall not be anybody who does this in israel one who uses divination one who practices witchcraft or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or somebody who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead, a necromancer. There shouldn't be any of these people in Israel. Don't imitate the people of the land. Uh, In in verse 10, uh, the Lord says, or uh, Moses says, this is detestable to the Lord, okay? So that's just a quick background here to set up the problem. God hates, detests, It's abominable to God that somebody would offer their children as a sacrifice. But at the same time, God said in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, so you can flip back to Genesis 22. God said to Abram, take now, this is verse 2 of Genesis 22, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Man, that, that is exactly what he just said he hates he detests, it's abominable to him. Uh, Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So what the heck? This is AJ's question. What in the heck is going on with that? So let me just give you a quick, super quick lead up to Genesis 22. uh, Starting in Genesis chapter 12, I want to highlight just a couple of things about how Abraham ended up getting Isaac in the first place and why Isaac is so crucial To the story, because what that's going to do is going to set up not only the theological problem that we have of God hating child sacrifices, but then commanding Abraham to do that. Um, It's going to set up a narrative tension or a narrative problem here because uh, Isaac is super crucial to the story. Uh, So, way back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the Lord calls Abram out of his country. He says, I want you to leave your land. I want you to leave your family. Go to a land that I'm going to show you. I promise to give you the land. Uh, I promise to make you a great nation. You're going to have lots and lots of kids. And through one of your kids, all of the earth is going to be blessed. So as you're reading along in Genesis and you're turning the pages from Genesis chapter 12, you should be saying which one of Abraham's kids is going to bless all the earth. Uh, By the time you hit Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, Abraham is a rich man. Uh, He's won some battles and got a bunch of loot and stuff like that but he's got no kids and he's not pumped about it. And he's starting to get a little antsy and uh, he's kind of complaining like, Lord, what what's up with this? Like if I die tomorrow, then I don't have any kids. And like my servant is going to inherit everything that I own. And God promised him kids. And the Lord takes Abraham outside and he says, I want you to look up and I want you to count the stars. And if you could count the stars, that's how many uh, children that I'm going to give you. And Abraham makes uh, one of the great moves in all of the story of scripture, right? God makes a promise to an old man uh, about having children. And Abraham, in spite of all of it, said, okay, if the Lord says so, I believe it. I I trust him. And Genesis 15, 6 says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's huge uh, in the whole story of man's dealing with God. How do we find righteousness with God? Abraham is the model. We find it by faith, not by working hard at it. In Genesis 16, Sarah, Abraham's wife, she starts to get antsy and she decides she wants to fulfill God's promise for God, which is always um, always a bright move, right? Always, whenever God promises something, always when you start to get antsy and um, impatient, go ahead and just try to solve that for God on your own. Uh, Sarah does that and she's got a servant uh, named Hagar And she says to Abraham, hey, I got a brilliant idea here. Check this out. Listen to this. I know God promised us children, but we're getting a little older now, right? And Abraham, you're just not the same man you once were. And, you know, honestly, I'm probably not the same woman I once was. Uh, But God made a promise for kids. Why don't we solve this? You know, I have my servant Hagar. Why don't you go ahead and have her and have a kid with her? And then we'll have a kid just like God promised. See? Brilliant, right? Right. And, um, you know, Abraham being the godly, wise, mature saint that he was said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, <laughs> right? I can go for that. So Sarah gives Abraham her servant, Hagar. Abraham gets with Hagar. They end up having a son. His son's name's Ishmael. Ishmael ends up being the father of a lot of the bad guys in the story of the Old Testament. Ishmael is not the child of the promise that God made. Ishmael is the child of Sarah's own uh, intention and her own will. And listen, just like every single other place in the story of the Bible, whenever a guy ends up with two wives or more than one wife or a wife and several other women all at the same time, it all goes super bad, right? So you can just expect all kinds of family tension and trouble and immediately in the story— Uh, Hagar and Sarah start fighting and there's just all kinds of trouble in the family. And, you know, all of Abraham's kids pull off the same thing and they have all the same trouble. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 says um, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, singular, not wives, plural. And uh, anytime guys try to go for wives, plural in the story, it's always bad. And it's no different with uh, Abraham and Sarah. Right? So now we have Ishmael, but we don't have a child of God's promise yet. We get to Genesis chapter 17. Abraham is 99 years old, and he still only has one kid, and that's Ishmael. And God restates his promise that I'm going to give you more kids than you, you can count. Abraham's 100 years old, and his wife is 90 years old. Now, I know 100 is the new 40, but In terms of childbearing, like that's old. You know what I'm saying? It's like, Bill's like, no, it is not. (laughs) It is not. So God restates the promise. I mean, it's impossible at this point, it feels like in the story, but God restates the promise anyway. I'll give you more kids than you can count. Uh, They'll take over the land and possess the land. And Abraham just says, Lord, wouldn't it be simpler if you would just fulfill the promise through Ishmael? I mean, I already got a kid. He's already ready to go. Look, just, you know, wave your magic wand over Ishmael and everything will be fine. And the Lord says, no, that's not how it's going to be. It's going to be one of Sarah's sons because it's going to be a son of my promise. Uh, It's not your own uh, wisdom and your own work and the work of your own will. Uh, So God reassures Abraham that Sarah is going to have a son and that the blessing that was was promised all the way back to uh, Genesis 15 is going to come through the son that Sarah bears. So this is where we are. Uh, leading up to the story of Genesis 22 and Isaac. uh, Sarah does end up having a child, Isaac. Uh, This son, Isaac, is crucial to the promise of God. The king who comes in the last day is going to come from Abraham's family, and he's going to be the child of promise. And right now in the story, Isaac is critical. Like, if we don't have Isaac, we are wondering about God's promise of a king who comes in the last day. But... Now we get to Genesis 22, verse 2. God said, take now your son, your only son whom you love. And Isaac's not his only son, but he's the only son that matters in the story, right? He's the only son of the promise. Take now your your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I will tell you. So, A.J.'s question, how can God who hates child sacrifice everywhere else in Scripture command Abraham to offer his son? as a burnt offering. So there's the tension. There's a theological tension. How can God hate it and command it? And at the same time, there's a narrative tension. Isaac's crucial to the story and God says, I want you to offer him as a burnt offering and kill him. Okay. So hop over to Genesis 22 if you're not already there. And we're going to pick up in uh, in verse two in the command that God gives to Abram. And it's very simple. Take, go, and offer him. And there's no explanation given in the text. Just, it's that simple. Take him, go, and offer him up. And Abraham is left with only that. And we as readers are left with only that as well, right? No explanation given for why, what for, or anything like that. Uh, The author's been highlighting uh, Isaac's role in the story and Isaac's importance in the promise of the Lord. So how in the world can God uh, ask him to be a sacrifice? And here the author in 22.2 is highlighting Isaac's important to Abraham, importance to Abraham. Your son, your only son whom you love. and the Lord is asking him to offer him up uh, as a sacrifice. Now, as we jump into verses three and four, we're going to get no explanation of any of this. We're going to get no description of what Abraham's thinking or feeling. We're going to get no explanation of what Sarah thought about it, really no explanation of what God thought about it. What we're going to get is sort of this very detailed narration of Abraham's actions. And I want you to notice as we read along here, it's it's like really detailed and sort of belabored. The author includes details that don't need to be included, and he's forcing us to sit with this tension or sit with this problem uh, while he gives us all these narrative details. Uh, this is verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Do we need to know what time he rose? Not really, but there's a detail just to make us pause and wait. And he saddled his donkey. Well, I, I, you know, I would just imagine that's what he would do if he was going on a trip. Like, do I need that detail? No. The author's just making me sit here with this tension and wait. Saddled his donkey. Took two of his young men. Do I need to know his travel party? Like, I don't need to know this. But again, the author's just making me sit and wait on this. Took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering. So we get the description of Abraham out chopping wood, right? He's got his axe. You see what the author is doing here? Just making us sit with this tension. Wait a second. How could you say to Abraham, offer your son? And he arose and he went to the place which God had told him. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and he saw the place from a distance. And so what we get is, as readers, we get left in silence for three days. We just get left sitting in silence on the journey with Abraham to sort of wrestle in our own selves with what's going on here, just like Abraham had to wrestle with what's going on here. The author's forcing us to wrestle along with Abraham on this three-day journey. By the time we get to verse 5, uh, Abraham finally breaks the silence in the story, and he says to his young men, and again, uh, just a quick reminder, as you're studying your Bible and narrative literature— uh, one of the ways authors characterize characters in the story is through their own words. Right, we're looking for a character's words, characters' actions. We're looking for other characters' words about them. Um, there's lots of ways an author will characterize someone. Right now, we're gonna get a sense of who Abraham is and what he thinks and feels through his own words in verse five. Abraham breaks the silence and he says to the young men, "Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Does anybody's Bible say, we will go over and worship and I alone will come back because Isaac will be dead? No? (laughs) I'm going to pause here and ask you guys a question and hit your space bar and jump in on this if you like. What are some ways we could interpret Abraham's motives for saying this to the young men? Like what could Abraham be doing here as he says, we're going to go over and worship and we're going to come back Knowing full well, the Lord told him to offer up Isaac as an offering. What, what could be his motive for saying something like that? He didn't want anybody to interfere. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So, Bill, Riley, is that what you were saying too? Yeah, I wouldn't want somebody to stop him. Okay. So, Abraham saying, hey, you guys wait here. Don't worry. There's nothing fishy going on here. I'm definitely not sacrificing my son. So, you don't need to get worried. You don't need to try to step in and get involved in this kind of thing. That could definitely be one of the reasons or one of his motives. I don't want to have anybody get in the way of what I'm doing, so I won't really tell anybody what I'm doing. What could be another motive here for what Abraham's doing? He doesn't know what God's going to do, and anybody but he and Isaac being there could mess the whole thing up. Okay. So he's just uh, trying to be extra cautious here and not letting anybody get involved and sort of foul up what the Lord is trying to do. Maybe he's trying to keep it a secret from Isaac. Okay. Yeah, he doesn't want Isaac to know what's going on. He's trying to, hey, guys, shh. Yeah, everybody else might know, but I don't want Isaac to know because he's. I want to keep him on the dark on this thing. Yeah, okay. Um, I want to highlight the last thing that he says. We will go over and worship and we will return. Now, I don't have any reason from the author in the story of Genesis here to assume Abraham is being tricky or fishy or sneaky or anything like that, right? I, the author hasn't really given me any hint or indication that I should be worried about what Abraham's saying. So my first read is what Abraham says, and I should, I should take him literally. Abraham expects to go over and return with Isaac. Abraham expects Abraham and Isaac. To come back. Right? That's what he says. The author hasn't given me any reason to think otherwise. So for right now, let's just do this. Let's take Abraham at his word and let's see how the rest of the story plays out. And if the author wants me to think otherwise uh, about him as we go. And by the way, Abraham's words in verse five, I'm going to just give you a little hint that's foreshadowing for how this story is going to end. 22, six. What the author's going to give us now is just more detailed. Narrative a uh, uh, more detailed narrative, Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took, his, took in his hand the fire and the I mean he's just laying out all the preparations that Abraham's doing again, just to make us sit as readers with this narrative tension, how is it that God could command Abraham to offer Isaac, who is so crucial to the story as an offering? so the two of them walked on together verse verse seven. Isaac finally asks the obvious question. Isaac looks around and he goes, well, yeah, man, I see a wheelbarrow full of wood. That's good. I see you got a torch with some fire. Also good. I see you got a knife. Uh, That would be good if we're going to be finding a sacrifice somewhere along the way. So, yeah, where exactly is the lamb for the sacrifice? That's, I think, the obvious question. Now, the irony is that Abram knows and The irony for us as readers is we know that as Isaac's asking that question, Isaac is actually the sacrifice that God has asked for, right? So there's this irony in the text where Isaac asks the obvious question, and the answer is himself, but he's not let in on it. And in in 22, verse 8, the author is going to give us more insight into Abraham's thinking um, through what Abraham says. Again, we're going to characterize Abraham by his own words. Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. What is Abraham expecting? Abraham is expecting, if we just take his own words um, as they they sit, and the author hasn't really given us any reason to think he's lying or he's trying to deceive Isaac, is that he's going to go over. The way that they're going to be able to both go back is that God is going to provide a sacrifice. God will cause a sacrifice somehow to show up. They're going to find one on the road. Uh, God will drop one out of the sky, something. But God will provide his own sacrifice. Now, I'm taking Abraham at his word here because the author is giving me no reason not to. So Abraham seems now to be a man with a lot of confidence in the Lord's word, right? When God says, do something crazy, Abraham's like, well, that sounds crazy, but I trust you. And I trust you can sort out this crazy thing that you're asking me to do. So verses 9 and 10, we're going to get more narrative action, and it's in excruciating detail, and it's going to take us right up to the very last moment. Uh, They came to the place which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there, and he arranged the wood, and he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Notice we don't get a single word from the author about how Abraham feels, about how Isaac feels, right? Right. We we don't hear that Isaac said, Dad, what the heck is going, what the heck is going on here? Like, uh, why are you tying me up with a knife in your hand? That seems awful weird. Uh, we really get none of that. We're left with our own feelings. We don't get to hear about Abraham's feelings or uh, Isaac's feelings. We're left with our own. What must it have been like to be Abraham? And would I trust the Lord? Like even up to this point, like Abraham's, oh yeah, like we'll we'll be right back, and God will provide a sacrifice no sweat okay well there isn't one and now we're on the altar with wood and fire and a knife uh we still trust in the lord well we're left with that question as readers because the author doesn't say a word about it how would i feel if i were isaac (laughs) like uh, i mean i got a couple thoughts about how i'd feel if i were isaac the author's not interested in giving us any of that the author's making us sit with the tension ourselves so we get this detail that's really tough all the way up into verse 10 and Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. Man, that's brutal. I mean, we're up, we're like right up, up to it. And finally in verses 11 and 12, the angel of the Lord stops Abraham at the last possible second. And now the angel of the Lord is going to speak about Abraham and the angels words are going to characterize Abram for us and tell us what we should think about Abraham. The angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand and it's the lad. Do nothing to him, because now I know that you fear God, since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What's getting revealed here, notice what's getting revealed is a lot about Abraham and what kind of person Abraham is in the story. And what's not being focused on at all is Isaac and God's desire for Isaac to be a sacrifice. That's where this narrative started, but every detail we get is about Abraham and his own heart, his own thinking, what, what kind of person he is. Does that make sense? So I'm trying to, I'm trying to highlight what the author is highlighting. This, this narrative is not about Isaac as a sacrifice. It's about Abraham as a man. And then in uh, verse 13, God actually does provide the ram for the sacrifice, just like Abraham trusted and, and said he would. Uh, Back in verse 8, this has been Abraham's uh, expectation all along. And then verses 15 to 18, the angel of the Lord restates God's promise to Abraham. I'm going to give you a ton of kids. They're going to inherit the land. All the earth is going to be blessed through you. the, The whole thing. And through these words, the angel really reveals God's intention for commanding Abraham to offer Isaac in the first place. Verse 16 By myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and you've not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I'll greatly bless you. I'll greatly multiply your seed seed or your offspring as the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. So you're going to have lots and lots of kids and they will rule over all of their enemies. And in your offspring and one of your children, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. So he's just restating the promise that he's already made, and verse eighteen is really key here. Uh, my English Bible says, "Because you have obeyed my voice." Does your text say, "Because you have obeyed my voice"? Probably almost every one of them says, "Obeyed my voice." So let me give you a little, just a little background here. Literally, the, the Hebrew text b- says, "Because you have listened to my voice." It's a super common Hebrew word, shama. It means to listen or hear. And so what the Lord s- says to the angel to Abraham. Is i'm going to bless you and keep my promise to you because you've listened to my voice now what the heck does it mean <laughs> what the heck does it mean to listen to the voice of the Lord and i'm going to give you, I'm going to show you in uh, in Exodus where the Lord gives us a, an equation between words so that we understand what does it mean to listen to the voice of the Lord. Uh, look over in Exodus chapter three verse 18 and this is the story about where <clears throat> the Lord is going to lead Israel out of Egypt. And he appears to Abraham in the burning bush. And he says, I want you to go back to Pharaoh and say, let my people go and go tell all of the elders of the people that we're getting up on out of here. And the Lord has visited us. Moses doesn't even know who the Lord is. He says, well, who who exactly are you? All all Israel have known have been Egyptian idols for 400 years. So Moses says, well, who even are you so that I can say who told me this? He says, I'm the Lord. Go tell him. We're going to get you on up out of here. And the Lord says in verse 18 of chapter 3, my English Bible says, they will pay heed to what you say. It's interesting. It's the exact same phrase from Genesis 22 when the Lord says, you listened to my voice. Here, the Lord says, they will listen to your voice. It's the exact same phrase. So the Lord says to Moses, go back, tell the people they're going to listen to you. Now let's skip over to Exodus chapter 4, verse 31, and we'll see what happens when Moses actually does go tell the people. So Moses goes back, tells the people, you know, performs a miracle and the whole thing, and Aaron and Moses tell all the people all of the things that the Lord said, and they perform all the signs in the sight of the people. That's verse 30. Verse 31, so the people believed. Now God said they'll listen, and when Moses actually went and told them, the text says they believed. What does it mean to listen to the voice of the Lord? It means to trust his word. It means to trust him. So let's jump back to Genesis 22. Abraham is blessed in this scenario or in this scene because he listened to the voice of the Lord. That is, he believed the word of the Lord. He trusted the word of the Lord. And how hard did he trust the word of the Lord? Um, if you want to like get a full like, back-end explanation of all of this, go over to Hebrews chapter 11, and this is the extent of Abraham's faith, right? In Genesis, what we get is, God's going to provide a sacrifice somehow, right? God will figure this out. If you read Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 17, 17 to 19, the author of Hebrews gives his interpretation of the Abraham and Isaac narrative, This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. And it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants will be called. I mean, the author of Hebrews is even highlighting the crucial role Isaac played in the narrative. Like, Isaac is the child of the promise, and yet Abraham still offered him up. Verse 19, Abraham considered that God is even able to raise people from the dead from which he also received Isaac back as a type. right? So in a manner of speaking, Abraham did receive him back uh, from the dead. He was as good as dead in Abraham's mind, but Abraham believed and trusted God so much that he even thought, well, worst case scenario, I'm going to kill my son and God will raise him from the dead. And so God says, because you have listened to my voice or because you have believed me, I will bless you. So in the narrative, what the author is trying to, I think, highlight for us is that God really never wanted Isaac as a sacrifice. Like God's intention was never that Abraham would kill Isaac. God's intention was always for something in Abram because that's what gets highlighted all the way through the text. It's Abraham's thoughts. It's Abraham's heart that gets highlighted over and over and over. in the text. That's what God is after through this whole thing. He's not after Isaac as a sacrifice. He's after what's happening in Abraham's heart. And if you think about the story of Genesis, all of God's words to Abraham thus far have been happy promises. You're going to have lots of kids. You're going to take over the whole land. The whole earth is going to be blessed in your family. And Abraham's like, yep, I trust you. Yep, I trust you. Yep, I trust you. And here we have, when God's word is a difficult word, do you trust me then? And the author's trying to highlight Abraham's faith and trust and that he listened to the voice of the Lord. Now, if you go back to Genesis 22, verse 1, The author saves us all this tension from the very beginning of the story. All right, Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came about after all these things that God tested Abraham. Before anything even happens, the author does not want us to misinterpret what's going on here. He doesn't want us to think God wants Isaac dead. He tells us from the very beginning the motive. God tested Abraham. God is not after Isaac. He's after a test of Abraham's faith. It's all been positive, happy blessing, word of God to to Abraham so far. Now the word of the Lord is a difficult word, and the Lord is driving after, revealing Abraham's trust in the Lord. Hey, Diggit! I hope this episode helped you know Genesis 22 better so that you can know and love God more. If you have Bible questions or theology questions that you'd like me to answer on the podcast— just email me at Jeff at dot or you could message me at the Core Life Training Facebook page or hit me up on Instagram as well. Next week I want to share a new guide that I've written for you called Next Level Bible Reading. When I became a believer, somebody gave me a Bible and I sort of found out right away that I should be reading it. So I did. But I was never really sure what I was supposed to be getting out of it, you know, as I was reading along. I was super committed, so I kept trying but I always had the sense that I could be and probably that I should be getting more out of my Bible study. Maybe you want more out of what you read too, but you're not exactly sure what to do about that. Uh, I've found that a ton of times over the years working with people. People that are hungry for scripture, they want to know the word, but are really not sure how to get the most out of what they're reading. Typically, there are four roadblocks that keep us from getting the most out of what we read in the Bible. In the next episode, I want to share those with you And then I want to get you my guide called Next Level Bible Reading. I want to help you level up your Bible study so that you can get more out of what you read. Thanks for checking out this episode. Don't forget after the outro is the drink of choice and your metal moment if you dig it. My name is Jeff Olson. I teach the Bible and I'll check you later. If you're still here, then you are here for this episode's drink of choice and metal moment. I already mentioned the drink of choice to open. It's Narwhal Imperial Stout from Sierra Nevada. They're out of Chico, California. Uh, listen, Narwhal is one of my top 10 stouts. You all know, if you've listened to this podcast at all, if you know me at all, you all know I'm a stout guy. That's my thing. Love IPAs. I love, love all kinds of different uh, styles of beer, but I'm definitely above all a stout guy. And, uh, There's probably 10 or 12 killer stouts out there that I just love, love, love all the time. And Narwhal is definitely one of those top 10. If you can get the barrel aged version of it, uh, that's also super killer. Uh, We actually had the barrel aged version of it here at the Hoppy Brewer locally where I live here in Gresham. And uh, it's so awesome. Uh, Anyway, Narwhal Imperial Stout from Sierra Nevada. Pick that up, check it out. It's super tasty. And now for your metal moment. Listen, I want to I play a band for you that I've known about for a while. It's a band called Forming the Void. They're a band out of Louisiana. Uh, as I said, I've known about them for a long time, but I've never checked them out uh, until recently, and I, I have a true confession here. The reason I didn't check them out before is because I didn't think their band name was very cool. Now, um, just because your band name is cool doesn't mean you're going to have a killer band. But there is kind of a pretty big track record of like cool band name equals cool band. You know, like Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Rainbow, Motorhead, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Motley Crue. Like you just pile up the good band names with good bands. And so I just kind of get in the habit, like if it's a band name that I'm not super pumped about, I don't immediately jump at the thing. Well, in May, these guys showed up. Forming the Void showed up at number four on the Doom charts. They just put out a new record called Reverie, and it was number four. And I thought, geez, for crying out loud, if it's number four on the Doom charts, I got to at least give it a chance, whether I think the band name is that awesome or not. I better check it out. Uh, I did check it out, and it's totally my bad that I didn't check these guys out before. Like, I'm an idiot, because they rule. Um, They're heavy. They have killer grooves. Um, they're trippy at points, uh, cool melodic, uh, vocals. Uh, I just like, I dig everything about this band and I'm kind of kicking myself that I never checked them out before. Uh, their new record Reverie came out in May. It's been on my record of the year list ever since, man. There's some great records. I know 2020 has sucked for live music. It's actually been pretty legit for uh new records coming out. And I'll, I'll end up giving you guys my, uh, top nine records of the year later on this year. But man, there's been some good music coming out. Reverie by Forming the Void is on my top record of the year list for sure. So I want to play you a track from their new record, Reverie. It's a track called Trace the Omen. This is Forming the Void. So grab your drink of choice, kick back, and crank it up.